Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack. And I'm again joined by Ryan Aris and Dr. Joe Boot here in the Knox Cellar. And today we're going to be picking up on a conversation that we had began last week. And that was a conversation dealing with the inescapable concept of dominion. And last week we interacted with a, a podcast uh, by Dr. Stan Fowler and Pastor Bob McGregor, where they were discussing uh, this concept of dominion. And we had hoped to clear up some of the uh the confusion surrounding the topic, a bit of the uh, misunderstandings and misrepresentation. So we'd like to play a little bit more of that clip today. So, but there's something optimistic when you talk to these guys that, that they really believe that the world can come under the control of the gospel, which is what a, a kingdom aspiration is. Um, but the reality is that this the world is in the hands of the evil one. He's, Satan is the god of this age. So do we, who don't hold to that viewpoint, do we proceed pessimistically that it's going to suck until Jesus comes? We'll do our best. We'll have influence, but we're going to be persecuted to the very end. And he will not have dominion from sea to sea until he comes in a premillennial kind of a scheme of things. Well, I, I don't think we have to be that pessimistic. Now, as you say, it is an optimistic view of things. It's an optimistic way of reading Scripture. Mm -hmm. And that's why the thoroughgoing theonomists, people in Dominion theology, generally are post-millennialists. They believe that by the power of the Spirit, the gospel will prevail on earth in this age the nations will, by and large, accept the rule of Christ before this age comes to an end. It's not that every individual on planet Earth will be saved, but it is that the nations will be mm-hmm. Christianized. And thus, so the vision of Isaiah 2, of, of the nations submitting their disputes, coming together mm-hmm. to Jerusalem there to, to submit their disputes to the law of the Lord— That'll be fulfilled in this age by the, by the power of the Spirit making the gospel effective in the lives of the nation. So they're, they're optimistic post-millennialists. And they would say it would be premature to say we can, just, we can make God's law, the law of the land now. But as the, as the gospel prevails, then it becomes possible. But even if we're not post-millennialists, and I'm not, we don't have to be we don't have to assume a pessimism that says we can have no influence at all i mean look at look at the history of the church right mm-hmm. the church has had a positive impact on 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 western culture so the freedoms we enjoy in western culture are traceable to the gospel and and the influence of the church so it is simply not true that that we have to be totally pessimistic and say mm-hmm. it's just going to be bad and it's going to continue getting worse 
and we have no hope of any positive mm-hmm. change until mm-hmm. the Lord returns. Right. We don't. We don't know that. But our our task is to be faithful, teach the truth, live the truth. Right. Seek to be the salt of the earth, light of the world. But there is a harvest, right? We are in the harvest field, and there there right. is a fruit that we are harvesting, which we rejoice in. That that's a that's progress. And we shouldn't think that because we are not bringing the nations under the dominion of the gospel that we're we're failing. No, um, in, indeed. Now, we, we don't know, you know, what how how much the gospel will prevail in this age. Only the Lord knows that. We'll find out in in the end. So, can you uh, can you just comment a little bit on? the ultimate goal, what we can expect and hope for to see of the extension of the kingdom of God in history in terms of uh, the the language of dominion? Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, I think, because sometimes, again, um, the biblical idea of dominion and then the what we might call the cultural uh, idea of transformational uh, thought is um, misconstrued as some kind of uh, triumphalism uh, that uh, that that this idea of dominion means that our expectation is that um, the uh, the every last um, adult video store will be closed um, every um, uh, covetous heart will be renewed uh, every um, uh, act of um, uh, of abortion or or or, or, or sexual promiscuity will be eliminated um perhaps even coercively by the force of by the force of law and of course this is a radical misunderstanding um of what we mean and i think uh you know it's probably helpful to 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 we started with bavink there and genesis 1 and psalm 8 which is clearly um uh, looking again at the significance or as does actually the book of hebrews read carefully the significance of the of the dominion um, mandate. So you see it there in Genesis. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in the Book of Hebrews. Um, but uh, we do reckon with the reality of the fall. And um, Abraham Kuyper, uh, and it's sometimes always good to you know if people are going to talk about Kuyper, to make sure we've read him uh, and do sort of have a clarity of understanding of what he himself was actually trying to say. Um, and in one of his little books on the Christian life, it was called The Practice of Godliness. Um, uh, Kuyper uh, says this, he says, when God made man, he crowned him Lord of creation, ruler of all nature. And then he quotes Genesis, replenish the earth and subdue it. With that injunction, man was given authority to discover earth's hidden riches and use them and control them. He was given dominion over all. But, uh, but, Kuiper goes on to explain that with the fall came the resistance of creation to that mandate. So thorns and thistles, uh, pain in childbearing. Now notice that the mandate to rule and subdue wasn't rescinded. It wasn't, God didn't say to Adam, hey, listen, now that the fall's happened, forget your gardening, forget agriculture, you're, you're done. You're done for. He didn't say to Eve, now that the falls happened, no children for you. No, he said pain and travail in childbearing and the resistance of creation to your cultural efforts. So what we see there, of course, is a picture of a creation that was unbroken 
by sin, i.e., by the, uh, the the breaking of the of communion with God, had, because all of creation in that sense is centered in the root, which is Christ. Ultimately, in other words, in man, what happens to man affects creation. In, man's relationship with God is determinative for creation. Paul the Apostle is clear about that in Romans eight, because he says that this creation has been subject to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, so that um, it groans, in fact, he says. It, it's, it's groaning uh, because it eagerly awaits our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, at which point Paul says it's going to be released from its bondage to decay. So what happens, this is the central place of man, the dominion man in creation. That, that is how significant and central our role is. So when Adam falls, um, the creation itself is affected, and it now puts resistance. It now resists our efforts at dominion, which originally it didn't. Uh, and now, even in the command to multiply and fill the earth, it puts forth resistance, pain in childbearing, infant mortality, and so on. Um, but um, uh, Kuiper goes on to say um, in a, a couple of pages later, he said, it is indeed God's will that man shall wrestle against nature and shall wrest a living from nature. In many everyday little things, we are constantly doing just that, in weeding our garden, in clothing ourselves, in averting death by means of food and drink and the general care of our bodies until God himself shall lay us in the dust. In other words, until dust you are and to dust you shall return. So, so the ultimate resistance of creation to our dominion, of course, is death and the decay of our bodies. But what does Christ come to do? Uh, the, the ultimate significance of this, Ryan, is that the, he, as we've just been singing about in the Christmas carols, you know, far as the curse is found, Christ comes to, as the last Adam, to break the power of sin and death and to restore us to his image, and to make us new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. So it's not that the, the creation as it is today still does not put up resistance. Hey, we know this on the farm here, right? Uh, uh, we see this resistance right across our acreage. We've got all that land management to do every day. We've got the management uh, every summer, I should say. We've got the management of our orchard uh, to do. Um, pruning starts very soon. Creation still puts up resistance. But what we're assured of, Kuiper says, is the power of the Spirit, the presence of God, so that despite the fall and suffering and things like viruses and the, uh, the, 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 the tragedies that can strike us and the disasters that can come upon us, we have the Spirit of God and we have the assurance that Christ, the true dominion man who walked on the water, uh, who who cursed the fig tree, who manifested his his total dominion over all of creation, that we are now uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that He's made us new creatures, and that He is He's bearing us forward in terms of His kingdom purposes. He's carrying us forward in terms of His kingdom purposes toward the final consummation of all things when He hands over the kingdom to the Father. And as Paul tells us, I think in 1 Corinthians 15, um, and uh, creation it, itself is then released from its bondage to corruption. 
So this is uh, this is what Paul talks about as a ministry of reconciliation. And, and I don't think there's anything more exciting. So Kuiper goes on. He says, nowhere in scripture do we find passive submission commended or recommended. Rather, there is a stimulation to put forth all our strength to strive courageously against the destructive forces of nature. And, and in terms of the current crisis, Ryan, um, there was one comment, because I was looking at this again today, that I found particularly interesting. He says, um, this struggle, of course, includes struggle against illness, right? Taking dominion means the, a medical profession. I mean, isn't that interesting, right? We're, people who sometimes speak against the idea of dominion are very happy to go for a vaccine, uh, very happy to go to their doctor. Well, what is medicine if it's not the attempt to take dominion and participate in the work of undoing the, the results of the fall, the resistance that creation puts up against us? Anyway, Kuiper says this. I thought this was very interesting. He says, but the word of God condemns unconditionally all seeking of medical help, which excludes a seeking of the Lord. All use of preventatives and cures, which disregards God, which fails to acknowledge him as the giver of both the remedy and the wisdom to apply it. He who struggles against sickness and suffering without humbling himself in prayer and supplication before God brings upon himself the curse of God. Not only the curse of Eden, but a second curse comes upon the man who in foolish pride believes himself wise enough and strong enough and great enough to harness and subdue and control nature. So in other words, the notion that man in his own strength, in his own wisdom, not in true worship, not as an image bearer of God, but without God, without the Lord Jesus Christ, just to be able to say, hey, you know, this is in a certain sense the dream of rationalistic man, of scientism, is that we are going to control, that's a kind of an apostate dominion mandate. We are going to take control of nature. We're going to subdue it to our purpose. We are going to dominate it. And we are going to, we are going to create for ourselves a world free from suffering, free from pain, free from hardship. I mean, this is the utopianism that we've talked about before. That is not what we mean by dominion. What we mean is, is that despite the resistance of creation, Christ is doing a renewing work. He's destroying the power of Satan, and he is bringing up, uh, uh, realizing his kingdom purposes in history. He must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated, says Paul, is death. So uh, a text that we return to you know, frequently. So it's not a, uh, a utopian expectation of the salvation of the entire world, uh, of uh, the elimination of all suffering and struggle. No, but it is the courageous, spirit-led, spirit-empowered uh, declaration of the gospel and application of the gospel to every area of life as a ministry of reconciliation that uh, we'll see in the process of time Christ subduing all of these things that resist him uh, until the moment, which is at God's own appointment, when Christ comes to consummate um, all things and, mm. and bring about uh, a to his total victory and the res restoration of all things to God. Mm -hmm. And it should make sense to us that as we're stewarding the structure of creation in a direction of obedience, we're going to provide true liberation and freedom from people without 
the coercive nature that's required by these utopia utopian thinkers. Yeah, that's a very good uh, and important, I think, distinction between the Christian view of dominion and the pagan view of domination. And I think, again, sometimes this gets conflated. People hear about the transformation of the gospel and their immediate thought is, ah, they want to seize the levers of power everywhere and impose upon an unwilling populace. Uh, I'm not suggesting that that was articulated in the podcast that we heard, but that's a very typical misunderstanding that uh, the, the, the goal would be a coercive grabbing of the levers of power because actually that's exactly what apostate dominion or domination does, right? It's about you take the powers of coercion and you uh, deploy them everywhere to try and remake the world after man's imagination. Whereas the Christian view is a dominion is service to God and service to fellow man and to bear an office, to carry an office. Um, and, and whether it's in the state, in the family, in the church, in business, wherever it may be, we bear an office under God and we serve God in that office, whether we're a doctor or a lawyer or so. Again, one of the mistakes that was made in the podcast was to talk about um, the that this is that this comes about by the churches, that we're saying this is the church's proclamation of the truth. No, we're not saying it's the institutional church's work to bring about some kind of dominion idea and you know especially you know the notion of establishing a church or or whatever it's the life of the christian wherever they are living in whatever office they bear living in faithful obedience to god um and that does of course include the state and perhaps that's a good place to um to wrap this some of this discussion up because i think that Typically, this becomes the focus of attention, right? The, the word dominion is heard, and immediately the first thing people think of is politics. That's partly because of the humanism of our age, right? And the humanism of our age looks to, secular religion of our age looks to the political sphere as the realm of power and dominion and authority and of government, big G, and doesn't really think of these other areas as areas of dominion but it's politics. So that's immediately where people's minds go and they immediately think, as you've said, Nathan, coercion. But let's just look very quickly at, at, at um, a couple of examples um, in scripture because in Daniel, the book of Daniel, there are two amazing statements by two separate kings. Don't forget Daniel, here's this faithful believer, uh, a prophet of God serving in government in the Babylonian empire and has a position of tremendous responsibility and, of course, immense pressure because there he's having from the very beginning, from when he sent school uh, into the education of Babylon, where he has to say, well, I'm not going to eat those things um, and comes to an agreement with the, uh, uh, the, the headmaster, if you will, about um, his stance and, and lays down this test. Look, why don't you come back and see how we're doing after a while on our diet? and uh, make your decision based on that. So from the very beginning, Daniel had to decide, am I going to serve in public life in terms of obedience to God? Or am I going to serve in, uh, in, in this role simply in terms of a synthesis view or a complete surrender uh, to the Babylonian ideal? And of course, we know the story of Nebuchadnezzar and, and the way that um, he ends up under the judgment of God and he eats grass like an ox and so on. He basically God sends a madness upon him. It says in Daniel 4, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. What does he say? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So Nebuchadnezzar, to all intents and purposes there, is effectively converted, recognizes the dominion of God and the kingdom of God, and says in verse 37, I, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, what works of righteousness and justice is he talking about? He's talking about the ones he's learned from Daniel. All God's ways are right and just. He's talking there about God's law, of course. Uh, and he's talking about the kingdom of God, the rule of God, and a similar experience uh, of King Darius, um, who wrote to, writes to all the peoples and all the nations. Um, this is, the, uh, this is the, after the incident of Daniel's deliverance from the mouth of the lions, you'll recall, Darius in, in Daniel 6. And he says, um, he writes to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, that's it, throughout his entire empire. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. So this is now law. This is, this is the juridical aspect. This is politics now. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Now, if that's not a manifestation of what's being talked about in Psalm 2, um, you know, I don't know what is. Uh, this is the kings of the earth kissing the sun, that is kissing the, 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 the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is heads of state not only confessing the dominion and lordship of God, but actually decreeing, making decrees in conformity to that. And when we think about this whole idea of this political application, and we think, you know, because a lot of controversy comes up even in this uh, extract of this podcast we heard there was discussion about england and you know the queen's coronation oath and you know is it just a paper uh, you know a, a paper commitment is not real anymore and what about psalm 72 verse 8 on the the crest of canada and so forth the reason we sometimes talk about those things is we are pointing out that the very freedoms that we enjoy today uh is are the result of the dominion exercised by our christian forebears that the, when we think about common law and the laws of our land and our constitutional history, going back to England, the, the codification of English common law began with Alfred the Great and the Ten Commandments and passages from the Book of Acts and passages from Paul's letters. And uh, as, as our, um, one of our fellows, Dr. Jonathan Burnside, is eminently and uh, eloquently shown 
um, biblical law is nascent in English law, and and our current uh, uh, legal, the current changes in our legal, uh, in our in our legislation, whether it's on divorce or human sexuality and marriage and so on, are an interaction with biblical law. They are an interaction with our legal past. They are repealing biblical law, the repealing of laws against blasphemy, the repealing of the Lord's Day Act here, and so on. The, this is this is domin, this is dominion. That's taking dominion. It's 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 man with his apostate religion taking dominion in the area of law and repealing scriptural law. Our forebears, it's all we're pointing out, whose faithfulness led to the kind of freedoms that we enjoy today, invoked the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. They took dominion also because dominion is an inescapable concept. Dominion is an inescapable aspect of our lives. We will form culture in terms of one idea of sovereignty, of kingship, and of man, either as an image bearer of the living God or as a being bearing the image of some idol, of some other idea of the imagination of men. So in law, in politics, in any of these areas, Nebuchadnezzar recognized it. Darius recognized it. There was a difference between Nebuchadnezzar's initial idea of dominion, Darius's initial idea of dominion as the head of state, and God's idea of what dominion for Nebuchadnezzar and for Darius really looked like. So I don't think this is complicated. Um, and, and that brings us to, the, to I think, the, the, the last point with this, which is that sometimes the resistance that's put up to that, when we say we're talking about in the family, we confess Christ. That means you have a Christian family. In the school, if you confess Christ and his lordship and apply it, you have a Christian school. If you, in, in business, if you confess Christ and his lordship and follow Christian principles and the word of God in the execution of your business, you can legitimately speak of Christian business. And in the state, if you acknowledge and confess as people who occupy offices in the state, acknowledge and confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as more and more people in those offices do, we can then generally begin to talk about a Christian state. This is what we mean. Now, the, the, this is where typically the sort of opposition gets thrown up is that that sounds fine in the family. Let's talk about the church. In the church, if you take dominion in terms of faithfulness to scripture, we can talk about a truly Christian church. But we can also talk about a synagogue of Satan, can't we? A, a false church, churches that don't take dominion in terms of the word of God, but in fact abandon scripture. And what are they other than synagogues of Satan? Just because they're called a church doesn't make them an aspect of the kingdom of God. And that's what we're talking about. This dominion that we're talking about ultimately is subsumed, subsumed under this biblical notion of the kingdom of God. And so in the family, in the church, we seem more comfortable talking about the kingdom of God. But as soon as we start talking about government and politics uh, and law, oh, suddenly we're nervous about talking about dominion and the kingdom of God. But this is our heritage. That's why we point back to it in reference back to the podcast. You know, that's why we talk about it, because this is our, our heritage. Um, the, the pushback that typically comes, and it was heard from one of the... Uh, one of the participants in that podcast is that, well, you know, but doesn't the world lie in the lap of the evil one? Doesn't Satan really control the world? He's the God of this age. 
You know, Satan runs the world, but along the way, you and I might hope to have an influence. Right? Along the way, maybe you can get that strip club closed at the bottom of your street if you, you know, assault and light. Um, maybe uh, you could see a change in um, uh, unjust laws in your municipality, uh, despite the fact that Satan runs the world. Now, I think that's a profound misunderstanding. It's true that in 1 John 5.19, um, we read the, uh, the, the apostle there referring to the role of, um, the role of Satan. Um, we know, it's, he says, John says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Um, but we, we of course know that scripture uses the world, the word world in a variety of different ways. It doesn't just mean one thing. John is not saying here that all of creation is run by the devil. That would be absurd. That would be an absolute contradiction of everything that scripture says. I mean, John Calvin talked about Satan, the devil being a pawn only on God's chessboard. He's not even allowed to touch Job without God's permission. So uh, there is no sense in which the Bible teaches that Satan controls the created order and runs history. What John is talking about here, as, the, as his whole letter actually makes clear, is that there is a contrast between the, ch the sons of the children of God and the children of disobedience. That's the, those who uh, follow the carnal mind that's at enmity against God uh, they are frequently referred to as the world. They're following the ways of the world, right? It's that's that's a that's a that's a that's a vision of, if you will, the kingdom of darkness, rather than the kingdom of God. It's the way of the world. It's those who reject and and uh, are apostate, who are followers of idols. Of course, those people have left themselves under the power of sin and death. They're outside of Christ. They leave themselves under the sway of the wicked one, but that's not true for us. Look at what this in the same epistle, in the same letter, in 1 John 3 8, this is what the apostle says Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Right? There it is. That's the world. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So we don't have we don't as Christians look at the world as a place that's that look at creation and art and and culture and say well that's a, that's a domain totally run by satan and maybe here and there we'll be fortunate enough to make a cha a small change here and there. Um and at the end um you know we'll struggle on sort of custer's last stand and at the end maybe you know Christ will come through. That's not the image we get in the Bible at all. In fact, um, the Bible says the opposite about the work of Christ. Indulge me with just a, a couple more scriptures. Um, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, Paul's talking about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This is Christ now, far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
and he put all things under his feet. Now, what's that language reminiscent of? That's Genesis 1. It's Psalm 8. Here is the dominion man. He's above all rule and authority, everything under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all, uh, who fills all in all. Now, what's fascinating about that is that when you then look at Ephesians 2, um, beginning at verse 4, Paul's talking about, uh, don't forget that uh, uh, there are no chapter divisions. Uh, these are in the Greek text. These are just help helps to us to find where we're supposed to where we want to be. So this is a continuation of the same thought. Paul says, "You were dead in your Christ is seated there. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but we've been. Uh, but He made us alive, verse four, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And listen to this, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places." In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, does does does, does Ephesians 1 and 2 or Colossians 1 tell us about a defeated Christ, a defeated Christian? living in a world, a creation governed by Satan, where if we're particularly blessed here and there, we might make a little change here or there. We might be fortunate enough to see, you know, uh, something happen here or there in somebody's life if we're salt and light. No, this, the scripture clearly speaks of Christ here, the dominion man, but this is why it's so important to connect chapter one and two. Yes, Christ, Paul says, he's, he's, a, he's at the right hand of God in heavenly places. He's far, far above all rule, power, and dominion, above every name that's named. And chapter 2, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated, seated us with him in the heavenly places. So we finish where we started. I said that dominion is about Christ and our position in Christ. And that's why Paul can go on in Ephesians 3, uh, verses 8 through 10 to say, uh, to me, though I am very least of the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what gives Paul his boldness um, and uh, his confidence. Uh, Christ appeared, according to the Apostle John, to destroy the works of the devil. He is seated in the place of total dominion. I love that echo in Ephesians 1 of Psalm 8 uh, and of, of Genesis 1. And he seated us together with him. And that's the key. That's the key to what it means to be an image bearer and to have dominion. It's that we now are in the Lord Jesus Christ and are seated in that place of authority. So that's why in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Therefore, you, you go and disciple all the nations, teach them everything I've uh, commanded you, baptize them, disciple the nations, teach them everything. That authority is ours. That dominion authority is ours in Jesus Christ. 
So as we're restored to true worship in Christ, we're restored, we're restored to true dominion. It's right there. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, we're restored to true dominion, which is the kingdom of God. That's the biblical term for it. Uh, because we are restored to true worship. We're restored to true culture, to true dominion. This world does not belong to Satan. Christ has stripped the principalities and powers of their authority. The Bible says he triumphed over them through the blood of his cross. He made an open spectacle of them. And yes, creation and Satan still put up resistance because of the curse, because we are also in Adam, but now we're also in Jesus Christ. And so that work of undoing the curse as dominion men and women, that's what is going on in the Christian life. And that's why in every sphere, in every aspect of life, uh, we have to live in obedience in the family, in a home, as in, in individuals as we seek to govern our own lives, in the workplace, in medicine, in law, in politics, in all these different areas. Christ Jesus is king over every sphere, and we are his vice gerents or vice regents. Uh, we are uh, rulers, governors in Christ and under his authority. Well, what a great place to wrap up this week's podcast. Uh, listeners, be encouraged. Take dominion by living in obedience to Christ. Joe, Ryan, thanks for the conversation this week. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. We hope you will join us again for next week's Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy. Every year about this time